0: Well, good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Welcome to El Paso Bible Church and goodbye 2021, huh? Amen. All right. Hopefully, you got a uh, bulletin and uh, it'll tell you the activities for the church. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, those will be the first two verses of that chapter that I'll be reading uh, for today's uh, uh, scripture reading. Uh, activities at the church this week they're still on break next week the youth start uh, they're going to be doing game plan that's the strategy for spiritual growth will be the topic that uh, that they'll be uh, focused on and many of the other activities will also be starting up thereafter three weeks from yesterday the men will be having a triple b b BBB, that stands for Bible, Beef, and Brew. So that'll be on a Saturday evening. We'll probably be cooking some steaks, having a Bible devotional, and also beverages. Okay, I think those are all the announcements. Uh, Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I'll read the first two verses for us, then we'll pray together, and then we'll sing together. The New King James says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And thus is the reading of the of the of the lord's word if you'll bow, bow your heads with me we'll pray together and then we'll have our chance to sing together father we do begin this uh this new year reading your scripture your scripture that gives us guidance and direction lord that gives us faith and hope father we pray now for those who are with us today and that, who's there, those that are attending with us online pray lord that they would uh, have a great service along with us that uh we would have this opportunity to begin our day worshiping Jesus Christ and praising him for all the things that he's done for us. Father, I pray for those who aren't with us today for many reasons, many that are traveling, some that are ill or sick and can't be with us. And so, Father, I pray that uh, you would bless those that are here as well as those that uh, need your healing hand. And I pray, Father, for this service. Lord, that you would guide us, that your spirit would guide our hearts, Open our hearts to your word that, it, as it's preached to us and as we sing. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Well, good morning and happy new year to everyone. Are you still comatose from all the food you had? <laughs> so I was informed that we only have one children's class today. Everyone's going over there. So to that explorer's room, actually the, the sparse room. Uh, so anyway, happy new year to everyone. I'm happy to be here. Good to see you. And uh, just have to say, second Sunday or second day of this, this new year, uh, just excited to see what, what the Lord has in store for us as a church family. There's a lot of exciting things happening at El Paso Bible Church. And on a more materialistic aspect, if you wish, we, we do have behind this building, we have uh, the new construction due to be completed here within the next six months or so, Ernie, you would say. Más o menos, give or take. Uh, so that's something to be excited for. Guys, it's, it's, it's been, I think, over 10 years Uh, 15 maybe, since we, we, uh, before my time, since that building was started, so it's exciting to see it completed finally. Uh, A lot of good opportunities we could uh, use that building for, such as reaching out to the community and and other things. So pray for that, pray for that uh, completion, and if you would, open your Bibles with me to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5, we'll be looking at two verses this morning. I am uh, obviously stepping in for Pastor Josh. He is uh, visiting family in San Antonio area, so, so pray he would make it back safely as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter five verses nine and 10. I will mention that Corinthians the, the two letters, is, uh, they're encouraging to me uh, personally, because I see God through Paul's ministry, reaching out to a church that is not exactly a role model to others. Uh, you see the Corinthians being divisive, fleshly, extremely gifted, but extremely carnal as well. In the two letters, there are some issues that Paul deals with as he writes to them. He addresses the, issue, uh, the issues that were being caused due to religious and cultural backgrounds. You may remember that there were some people in the church that were eating certain things and observing certain days. And there was another group that was against them. They, they had different uh, mindsets. Uh, there were schisms within the network of churches throughout Corinth. And, and even they were having issues with the order of service. Like who sings first? Who speaks first? Uh, Paul even addresses uh, on how to carry out their spiritual gifts. Isn't that a good problem to have? This is how you are supposed to carry out your spiritual gift. Now, a very important topic is found in our text today, and it is a topic that appears in virtually every book of the New Testament with the exception of Philemon and and John's Gospel, and it is the topic of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the actual phrase, judgment seat of Christ, uh, doesn't appear... uh, As it relates to to standing before Jesus. It doesn't the phrase doesn't appear but a couple times. But the experience of the judgment seat of Christ is seen throughout the New Testament. Now, in chapter five, he is talking about death, that subject that no one likes talking about. He's talking about death, how our bodies degrade into nothing, into dust. And then he he reminds his readers of the promise that we have as believers in Jesus. Of being clothed with our heavenly bodies, he then mentions the judgment seat of Christ. now it is interesting to me that he would he would mention the judgment seat of Christ uh, right after talking about death. It may have been that Paul was was motivating himself on how death is not the the end for the believer, and I also think it 's a question that most people have what happens to us after death well our bodies Go back to dust. But what happens to the immaterial part of us, our soul or spirit or both? Well, the answers are radically different if you're a believer and if you are an unbeliever And that's a uh, topic for another day. So in verse nine, he says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. Now, Paul has just mentioned in, in the beginning part of chapter 5 how his sufferings are insignificant compared to the weight of glory that awaits him. Insignificant. I beg to differ. They were not insignificant. He, he was imprisoned, persecuted, flogged, pelted with stones, exposed to death, shipwrecked, uh, without sleep, without food, without clothes. Not quite insignificant, and these are just to name a few, but there was something that motivated him to press on, to to stay in the race, and that was the idea of standing before the presence of Christ. And he says in verse 9, we make it our aim, we make it our ambition, our our goal, depending on the version that you're reading. It comes from two Greek words, one meaning friend or lover, and the other to strive earnestly to to make it one's aim. And hence we get this, this showing affection for what is personally valued. Our ambition. Our goal. Now we place value on things and pursue them as we see it fit. We all of us here value our spouses. Yes. I don't want any spousal arguments yet. <laughs> we, we all value our spouses. So, so we love them. We, we care for them. It is our lifetime objective. It is not a temporary thing. It is not a weekend thing. It's a lifetime commitment, a lifetime goal. And Paul says our ambition, our goal is to be well-pleasing to him, well-pleasing to Jesus. Now, whether we care to admit it or not, uh, we all have a constant desire to be accepted by others, to, to be Pleasing to others. Uh, Keith Hernandez is is one of baseball's top players. He is a lifetime three hundred hitter. Anyone here like baseball? No. You like baseball? Um, He he has won numerous Golden Glove awards for excellence in fielding. He's won a batting batting championship for having the highest average. The MVP, the most valuable player award in his league, and even in the World Series. Yet with all his accomplishments he has missed out on something crucially important to him and that is his father's acceptance and recognition that what he has accomplished is valuable. In a very candid interview when one day when, when Keith asked his father, uh, "Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. What more do you want?" And his father replied, but someday you're going to look back and say, I could have done more. So He was lacking this, this acceptance by a very important person in his life, his father. And Paul's saying we, we want to be well-pleasing to God. Now, this concept of being well-pleasing or pleasing God is not unique to Corinthians. Uh, how exactly do we please God? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, Paul connects the idea of walking, how we live our lives as a Christian, what we do, what we do not do. He connects that with pleasing God and, and furthermore he encourages the Thessalonians to have a snowball effect in how they please God, to abound more and more. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to follow God's example. Be imitators of God, he tells him. And he goes on to list a series of things that we should not associate with. And to contrast all of that, in verse 10, he says, and find out what pleases the Lord. Or another version, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. So again, in Paul's letters, uh, pleasing God is connected to what we do or do not do or fail to do. Now, it is interesting in virtually all the New Testament instances where the word, the phrase "well pleasing" appears, it is connected with God, well pleasing to God. With a couple of those references, uh, talking about how masters or slaves should please their masters. So we please God by the way we live, and ultimately God sees us through the lens of Jesus' blood. We have been accepted. That's a done deal. Uh, In in Colossians, Paul says that uh, God has canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having it nailed to the cross. Now, that doesn't get you going. I don't know what will. But pleasing God in this context talks about the sanctification part of our lives. Being sanctified day by day, taking up our cross, following Jesus. It is how we live in light of our justification, our right standing before God. And we don't do it to get saved. We don't try to please God to get saved or or prove that we are saved. In fact, you and I could go on living the rest of our lives without pleasing God and still go to heaven when we die. I would like to draw an analogy of uh, the relation of children to their parents. Uh, The younger my kids were the more they tried to please both my wife and me. Not so much anymore. But the younger they were, they, they, they did everything they could to get a high five, to get a trip to the ice cream shop. On one occasion, I remember uh, Gabriel and Lizzie, uh, they decided to wash my wife's car. And so they used uh, chrome polish to scrub the windshield. Oh, they got all the dirt and the grime off, but they completely ruined the windshield. Completely ruined the windshield. And they were so excited to show us the results, and we tried as hard not to show disappointment. But the windshield was ruined. So even in a screw-up like this, we were still pleased, kind of, with their efforts. We were pleased with their effort. So being pleasing to God... In the parable of the minus, uh, in the gospel of Luke, the master calls his servants. He, he gives them minus to work and eventually comes back to see what they've collected, what business they've done with what was given them. Uh, to some, the master says, well done. And to at least one other servant, he says, bad servant. So their master is pleased with some and unhappy with at least one servant for not putting to use the minor that was given him, for not engaging in business, so we use what God has given us to carry out our mission, uh, your spiritual gifts your your natural abilities. David, if you recall, he uses a sling, what was in his hand, the experience that he had acquired by caring for his father's sheep, and he uses that to kill Goliath, a job on is use well. Not a jawbone per se, but Samson uses a jawbone to kill a thousand men. Moses, shepherd's rod. God uses the little oil and the little flour that a widow had to feed her household. And Elijah, over and over and over, and it did not run dry. Now God will take pleasure in our faithfulness to Him when we use that which He has given us, that what we have in our hands. Think of your abilities again, your your spiritual gifts. And looking forward to this year, how can you use those to glorify God, to please God? In the previous section, we see Paul carrying out his mission here on earth, even if it involves suffering. His body was getting beat exponentially, but yet he had his eyes on the eternal weight of glory probably seemed to many around him, his, his, his coworkers, that the churches he had established were more of a bag of problems than legalism. Yet Paul kept on ministering to them. But why? Why should we strive to please God? Why make this our lifetime goal? In verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we must all appear before the judgment seat. Now, Corinthians, both letters, are written to the saints. Paul makes that clear in, in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 2. He calls them saints. He calls the Corinthian saints. Call them whatever you want, but saints? Not by a long shot. But it is written to the church of God, the body of believers that were in Corinth. And because this is true, uh, we know that the, we know the following. The, the following being that this is not a gospel tract uh, that shows you how to get saved or, or talks about unbelievers' destiny. This is the letter that you want to read after you've been saved to know how to walk, to know how to follow Jesus. In fact, most of the New Testament is not a gospel tract. Does it contain pointers to how to trust in Jesus? Sure, but its goal is not to reach out to unbelievers and tell them how to be justified. Now the only letter that does that is is the Gospel of John, specifically written to unbelievers and and even there even then there is a section that is written solely to disciples in chapter fourteen and fifteen. Now that Paul is writing to believers is also true in that he includes himself. In the equation, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So this 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 day of reckoning is on the radar. Every major religion has a day of judgment or a day of reckoning. In Islam, the end of the world is referred to as the hour. And it involves Jesus returning to Damascus to slay an antichrist that has put the world in peril. In in Hinduism, get this, in Hinduism, there is a story of the god Vishnu coming back in the last cycle of time as a figure called Koki. He rides a white horse. Sounds like Jesus, right? He rides a white horse. He carries a sword that looks like a comet and destroys the forces of evil. Sounds like they're copying Revelation there. Now, these major religions all have one judgment in view. Whereas scripture keeps the different judgments separate. Not just one judgment. There's plenty of judgments in scripture. And the judgment seat of Christ is unique and has nothing to do with the other judgments. Um, I remember my parents growing up. uh, They had pictures and just different wall decor around the house. And two of the frames they had were religious in nature. Uh, I remember one of them being the Ten Commandments. Written in Old English fonts. Any of you had that? Have you seen it? Apparently, God's preferred fonts, Old English. The other one was a picture of Jesus sitting on a throne surrounded by a multitude of angels, light, a big staircase, and all the peoples of the world standing before him. Now, I was taught growing up that this depicted the one and only judgment, the great white throne judgment seen in revelation chapter 20 and that we'd all have to stand before this throne believers and unbelievers together and give an account of our actions to see if we met the standard now imagine that guys standing before the great white throne think of all your wrongs all your failings and try to explain that away in order to get to heaven ouch sure we had faith in jesus but, but this, this judgment, the, the great white throne, was going to determine if we were in or out. And because of this, I had no assurance. I grew up thinking I wasn't good enough, always doubting myself. I had no identity in Christ. Now the bema of Christ, a bema meaning, meaning judgment seat, the bema of Christ is what is in question here versus the great white throne. So what is the bema? So it is not unique to scripture. Uh, the Bema is a tribunal for rewards. In, in the large Olympic arenas, there was an elevated seat in which the judge of the contest sat. And after the contests were over, the, the successful competitors would assemble before this, this tribunal, this elevated seat uh, to receive their rewards or their crowns. The rewards or crowns being made out of perishable things. Now, the Bema was not a judicial bench where someone was condemned. It was a reward seat. Likewise, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judicial bench. After the race is over for all of us, after our life is over, God will gather every member of his family before the Bema for the purpose of examining each one and giving the proper reward to each. When does the Bema happen? Not sure. It may happen right after we give our last breath here on earth. uh, Perhaps right after the rapture. Now I think that for sure it happens before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Based on Revelation 19 where believers are clothed with fine linen which represents our righteous acts, deeds. So two different judgments and, and two different audiences. Uh, in the great white throne, it's, the audience will be an audience of unbelievers. Judgment seat of Christ, it's the church, the family of God. At the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be judged based on what we did or failed to do. Our motives will be judged. And Paul presents essentially the same idea in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he speaks of a coming assessment of each one's work before the Lord. In that passage, he makes it clear that what we have done and our motives for doing it will be tested by fire. And the purifying fire of God will burn up everything that was of lesser quality. Boy, I have a lot of things that are going to be burned up in my life. We won't be punished for what was not done for God. It will simply be burned up. It will be as if we never did those things. So we'll be simply Uh, will be simply rewarded for what remains now can you look back in your life and think of a time or a long period of time or short period of time where you just burned up a big chunk of your life doing things that really didn't matter really didn't benefit you at all I know I can and I know I, I know I still do on occasions and sadly some will get to stand before the judgment seat of Christ thinking that They have accomplished a lot of things, and at the end, it's just going to be burned up, as if they did nothing. Things that were futile didn't produce any good for any person. It would be wasted. So we only have one chance to make our lives count. That is right now. Verse 10, in that latter part, he says that each one may receive the things done in the body. Now, let me give you an exercise. You, you can hate me afterward. Think about all the things you've accomplished thus far or failed to accomplish. The missed opportunities, the mess-ups, the things you regret in life. All the things carried out in your body will be taken up to God. Uh, this this word, the word for done, uh, is proso, the, the things done in the body. It talks about our affairs doing business so to speak or what activities you engage in so all the th- all the things you've engaged in while in the body will be compensated you're probably thinking payday and that's precisely the picture here there this is the great payday for believers this is when you get your crowns your rewards to later be thrown at the feet of Jesus now the penalty of sin by this point has been dealt with at the cross we We don't have to do anything to anyone to prove anything to anyone. Uh, We are saved. No one nor nothing can change that. But we try to do right because it is good for us and especially in light of the judgment seat. Now one cannot but think of the parable of the minas. They are all given something to work with. He calls ten servants and he gives them each one mina or ten minas. They don't have to do anything if they don't want to. They don't have to work. They don't have to do business with it. But doing so would bring great benefits in the interim, but especially when the master returns. And this is the goal of athletes as they near competition, right? They, they prepare, and while they are preparing, there are great health benefits, but their performance will ultimately show on competition day. If they want to be superior, they have to push. They have to press on, diet, diet. Right now, we are in a race, so to speak, church. Many are competing, many start the race, and as we go on, many drop out of the race. But if you stay in the race, if you make it to the end, your effort will be recognized. You may even get a top prize. A good friend of mine once advised me to uh, picture myself at my own funeral and imagine the things that will be said. What are those things that I like said about me? Well, not lies for sure. It tends to happen a lot. Not lies. But also nothing really bad. I want to live a life that is not only pleasing and a blessing to those around me, but a life, a life that honors and, and pleases God. So we'll be compensated, Paul says, or we will receive those things that were done in the body. And lastly, he says, whether good. Or bad. There's a contrast. There's a contrast here between the two words, good or bad. You do one or the other. Now, in our life, in my life, uh, I know it's more of a roller coaster. I do both good and bad. Over and over. The idea here, however, is that some things are useful. Some things are beneficial. So it's not a matter of doing X or Y sin or abstaining from doing X or Y's and it's more a matter of helping the advancements of the gospel by using your spiritual gifts, the good. Or sitting on the couch and binging on Netflix all day, the bad. So you do useful things or you do useless things. You do worthwhile things, things that count for eternity or the opposite. Now in a perfect world, in a sinless world, this wouldn't be too difficult of a task, would it? we would get up every morning pain free looking forward to that day we would perform each task with perfection whether it be exercise or business or whatever it may be and then we would check off the box that said please god by doing useful and beneficial things in a perfect world performing tasks that are beneficial wouldn't be so hard it'd be second nature and a Perfect world is not our case. It's hypothetical, wishful thinking. I'm inspired by the story of a 1992 Olympic runner by the name of Derek Redman. He was competing in the 92 Olympics and was doing quite well. Until he was about 250 meters from the finish, his left hamstring tore and stretch bearers made the way to him, but he decided that he would continue to the end. With the torn hamstring, he began to limp his way along the track. And he was soon joined on the track by his father who barged through security and onto the track to get to his son that was in excruciating pain. They both completed the race together with Derek leaning on his father's shoulder for support. As he crossed the finish line, the crowd of 65,000 spectators rose to give Derek a standing ovation. Now, in a perfect world, he would have dashed through the track without one single hiccup. That didn't happen. And in his case, he actually got disqualified for finishing with the help of another. But in his case, the best he could do was limp his way toward the end. He didn't earn a top prize. But his story of resiliency has inspired many across the globe. Now, we are all unique here. We are all unique. Some in this race will have torn hamstrings. Some will struggle with a specific sin or set of sins over and over and over to our deathbed. Others will be bogged down by diverse things in life. And sometimes just the the best we can do is get back up and limp toward the goal. Because ultimately, we all want to hear, well done, faithful servant. Well done. Whether we we brought 10 minus to Jesus or two, whether we led a missions organization or were faithful praying for the ministry of your local church, we all want to hear, well done, faithful servant. I listened to the story of Ed Underwood as he explained how he... Uh, experienced the toils of the race and how he was able to see God working through it. He, he shares about his gory condition, a, a skin condition that, that causes extreme itch and makes your skin fall off, literally. Kind of hard to compete in that race, isn't it? Now, if I may offer some encouragement for this new year, I will tell you, stay in the race. The, the last couple years has proven to be rough on many, many people. A lot of people lost their jobs and their lives. I knew a couple of godly men that, that lost their lives to COVID, leaving their families behind. Maybe COVID is nothing to you. It's a walk in the park compared to the things you've experienced or will experience this year. Again, I say stay in the race. Don't stay in it because you have to prove that you are a child of God. That's a done deal. Stay in it because of the rewards and because of the testimony that you are leaving. The the, the trailblazing for others to follow. So looking at his own life, Paul shares his struggles, how he was beaten. How his body was degrading exponentially because of ministry. And... He still found a way to stay motivated in light of the behemoth of Christ. The eternal weight of glory, he says, would completely wipe away his sufferings. Now, the rewards won't be on a one-to-one ratio, probably not even a ten-to-one ratio. We, We don't know what ratio, but we know it will be ridiculously great for every tear you drop, for every struggle you go through. Everything you push through, a reward will be waiting. That is the concept of, of verse 10. So God is cheering for us. God is cheering for you. He is watching. He will come out. He will help you get back up if you fall in the race. He has your best interest in mind. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace, your sacrifice for us in the cross of Calvary. And that it is, it is because of that so that we are a child of God. Our identity in you is sealed. And Lord, just looking forward to this uh, next year, we ask that you help us stay strong and stay firm. That it be our ambition to please you in everything we do. In everything, everything, every single thing we do. That's in your son's name that we pray.
2: Amen. Thank you.